0: Welcome to Making Chips. We believe that manufacturing is challenging, but if you are connected to a community of leaders, you can elevate your skills, solve your problems, and grow your business. I'm your host, Jim Carr, and I am joined by my co-host, Nick Golner today. Jason is buried in ERP implementation back in Chicago, and Nick and I flew out to Clinton, Connecticut this morning to do an interview with a young entrepreneur in metalworking.
1: So some big shoes to fill, but I'll do my best. I
0: think you're going to do just fine, Nick. It's a pleasure having you with me today. It, it's a good one-on-one time. We've been working together now for months. We've known each other for years, but I think it's going to be a great show today. I'm really stoked to re-record this episode.
1: Yeah, we had quite the adventure getting out here. Why Why are we re-recording <laughs>
0: Well, we're re- recording because we originally had our guest on the show about a month ago. He flew out to Chicago. We did the episode and for some reason we just couldn't find the content. Like you know, uh you forgot to hit the record button? I don't know. We we don't know. We're not gonna point fingers at anybody, but all we know is we didn't and this is gonna be ten times better this episode than well there's the last nothing one. like
1: being in the shop, seeing it for yourself. So I'm, I'm glad we made the trip out here, even though our flight got canceled. Even though our flight got canceled, but we worked through the
0: problems, much like in manufacturing, in metalworking, when you're running your daily business, life throws you all kinds of things and you have to adopt and change and, and and move forward, right? Well,
1: Last night, life threw me a call from you at like three in the morning saying, hey, Nick, our flight's canceled. We got to get on a new one. So here we are. We, we did made it. it.
0: We did it. We're here. So as we normally do in the show, we talk about what's new. Jason and I normally talk about what's new in our respective business. So tell me what is
1: new at AME, Hennig. Well, I'll talk about AME today. We're going to do an episode in the future on the power of partnerships. And I'm really excited about this new partnership that we have with Stan Martin. Oh yeah, Stan, I know him. I think you got one of his trunnion. I do. He's on my VF too. Yeah, we got this Amrock brand. It's all about workholding. There's a little hole in our portfolio in the trunnion category, and Stan is our new partner, and we're really excited to bring his stuff into our fold and see what we can do together. So
0: Yeah, they really have a unique workholding system. And what I like about their particular trunnion tables is the way that they integrate with the Haas brand and the Haas Rotary Tables. I know if you go on their site, you just tell them what type of Haas model number you have, what type of rotary, like we have HRT 210 and I think a 310 now. And he'll show you exactly through his website what trunnion table adapts to that particular exactly. rotary. Exactly,
1: you you nailed it. The word is yeah. integration. integration. So he's a machinist by trade. He understands exactly what they're trying to do. He's got all the relationships with the indexers we just want to build on top of that with our, with our work holding systems that go on the trunnion. So it's a perfect partnership, and I'm excited to talk about it in the future. Yeah. But what's new at Carr? Well, you know, Jason always makes fun of me. He doesn't
0: make fun of me, but he always razzes me about not being a big reader, right? So I've been living in the podcast world now for four and a half years, and we've interviewed some really dynamic people, and I've learned a lot about reading, And about like how to read what I miss. No, I (laughs) I mean, I know how to read. I know how to read. I I definitely know how to read. It's just, I I never really enjoyed it, but pushing myself out of my comfort zone, I've really implemented culture. Of course, cars, uh, we just won two awards a couple weeks ago. Thank you. The next step for us is integrating traction into the car machine and tool. So we've been reading traction as my leadership team. There's four of us. And Last week, we, we wrote our vision, we wrote, we defined our 10-year, our three-year, our one-year, our 90-day, and issues, and it, it has just been so impactful on, on the way I can see the business is going, and it really, it demonstrates that when you empower your employees, they really
1: stand up and, and give it back, so. Absolutely. And that's been a great book for us, too, The Traction Book, yeah. and the whole EOS, Entrepreneurial Operating System, I just... I think it's it's really, a lot of it's kind of self-explanatory or maybe common sense, but people don't do it. They don't reverse engineer success and they don't look much further past tomorrow. So what it forced, we're, we're going through the same thing and what it forced us to do is really take a look at like, okay, if we're going to hit this 10-year vision, we got to break it down into a three-year goal, a one-year goal, 90-day targets, all the way down to what are you getting done this week?
0: Absolutely, 100%. And making ships is going through the same process as well. Absolutely. And- Fist bump to me because I just hit a rock the other day, and I'm it's still glowing from the afterburn of hitting that rock. Yeah,
1: it's it's exciting when it you lay out targets and you get them done. Oh my God, it's, it's like it's feeling. it's
0: the best feeling. So yeah, and I know everybody on the team was happy that I, I hit that rock as well. You're a rock
1: star, Jim. I
0: yeah, I, I've always wanted to be a rock star. Now I'm a <laughs> recording star, so that's okay. I'll take it. I'll take whatever I can. But manufacturing news, let's talk a little bit about that. What's what's new at The Boring Bar?
1: So yeah, The Boring Bar is our newsletter. You can get that newsletter at makingchips.com. And what you'll get in the newsletter is you'll get uh, chip-in contributors. They're the, what is a chip-in contributor? They're the Nick? leaders that we bring on. They can share their insight with us. They can publish it on our site, and then we can share it with Metalworking Is it somebody that owns a restaurant? It is not. No, okay. not that kind of chip. So
0: what, what kind of leader are they?
1: Anyone who can equip and inspire the manufacturing leader okay. is a good candidate for someone who could chip in on making chips. Okay. So actually, the youngest chip-in contributor is is our guest today. It's Brandon Kane. All right. And he's telling his story about his entrepreneurial journey and why he and his father started this machine shop.
0: Yeah. I've read it. It's awesome.
1: The other piece of The Boring Bar is a, th- a three-part series that I wrote on entrepreneurship in the manufacturing industry. We're about, what, four months into this thing, and everyone tells you, hey, don't start a business if you want an easy life, and they weren't kidding.
0: It's not It's not easy. My dad always said if, if it was easy, everybody would do it. Exactly. You just got to keep driving through, and you're going to have... Good weeks, bad weeks, bad months, good months, good years, bad years, and all I know is if if you continue to pursue and push through, things will change eventually and it'll become positive once again.
1: And the last piece of the boring bar is always the the manufacturing news, where we take some news from the manufacturing industry and we talk about it. This week's news is not necessarily just from the manufacturing industry, it's about startups and it's the statistics. Why did we pick that this week? Just because we're talking about startups here today, we're talking yeah. about manufacturing startups, and these are the numbers that you need to know. So the article is from smallbiztrends.com. Can I read some of these statistics? Please. Because I'm going to take the credit for finding
0: this article. When I was doing my research for it, it was it was really sobering when I read some of the statistics about startups. And I'm just going to read them verbatim. And it says, a 51% of owners of small businesses are 50 to 88 years old, 33% are 35 to 49, and only 16% are 35 years and under. 69% of US entrepreneurs start their business at home, which that that was much like me. I don't know about your family.
1: I don't think we started it at home. I don't don't think so. Mine was. Because home was Germany for us. So we immigrated here (laughs) and then we started the business here. Well, mine was,
0: my dad started the company, the machine shop, in the two-car garage of our residential home. It's always that that garage story. I was 12 years old, and it just went to the next level. The next bullet point is, according to the National Association of Small Businesses 2015 economic report, the majority of small businesses surveyed are S-corporations, 42%, followed by LLCs. 23%. 23%. Yeah,
1: see, these are the kind of things. I Did you know that? I don't really I'm know. I'm a C Corp. I mean, I, I don't even remember how we company, structured C- making C- chips. I know. I don't know why or how, and there's all sorts of things. You don't know what you but don't know. we're not know. accountants, right? Yeah, exactly. We're, we're so manufacturers. We're about that. We know how to cut metal, right? Let's get into some of these failure rate statistics.
0: Uh, do we have to go there?
1: Well, I think people need it's to sobering, go in sober-minded. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So a bit more than 50% of small businesses fail in the first four years. In fact, of all small businesses started in 2011, 4% made it to the second year, 3% made it to the third year, 9% made it to the fourth year, something about that fourth year, and 3% made it to the fifth year. So the leading causes of small business failure, incompetence, 46%. When I read that, I was like, how can
0: somebody that is starting their own business, that is passionate about the business that they're going to open, they're going to put their blood, sweat, tears, money, and capital into it, how can forty six percent be incompetent? It doesn't make sense. Well, it to takes me. a little bit more than passion, doesn't I, it? I know. I know by the people that we're going to be interviewing today on the show is I know they're not incompetent at all, and I just it just makes sense to me. Now, maybe in the restaurant business, people think, "Oh, I really like to cook, or I really like hospitality. I'm going to, you know, start a restaurant, and it fails because they have absolutely no idea how hard it is, the hours, and what's involved, but Definitely, I think, in manufacturing, if you don't have the skill sets to start a manufacturing company, you better not start.
1: Well, that's exactly it. So the the next biggest reason for failure is unbalanced experience or lack of managerial experience. I must have read that. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) So, yeah, startup finance statistics, the vast majority of
0: startup funds, 82% came from the entrepreneur himself or herself or family and friends, and then breaking that down, it says 77% of small businesses rely on personal savings for their initial funds. 40% of small businesses are profitable, 30% break even, and 30% are
1: continually losing money. Wow. Here's, here's a great one. Having two founders rather than one significantly increases your odds of success as you'll raise 30% more money, have almost three times the user growth, and are 19% less likely to scale prematurely.
0: Yeah, 82% of businesses that fail do so because of cash flow problems. Exactly. Wow.
1: In those articles I wrote about startups, it, t- it talks a lot about how there's these influencers who are like, oh, just start your business, and then eventually you can get these Lamborghinis that you see in the background. I don't know if anyone no. knows this Ty Lopez guy, but he drives me nuts. He's all well, like- You've mentioned that guy before. It must be out of, oh, it must he, be out of my demographic. I don't know. The, yeah. the point is, he's like, hey, if, if you just read a bunch of is books and work actually? really hard, you can have a car full of uh, hot rods like me, and it's like, no, man. Cash flow is one of the biggest things that could kill your business. So yeah. anyway, well, anyway let's, let's get into it's, the
0: episode. It's scary. Yeah, it's it's a scary thing. And we all know you just got to work hard and then play hard. And again, <laughs> like my dad always said, if it was easy, everybody would do it. So I'm anxious to re-record this episode. It's going to be 100% more impactful because we have got the other half of Brandon Kane's business partner with us today. And I'm sure he's going to really help us and the metalworking nation quite frankly answer the tough questions about starting a small manufacturing company. So Nick, why don't you go ahead and uh, introduce and read the bio to our guest.
1: So today we're welcoming Brandon Kane, a young man starting out in our field. He's been operating as a small business owner in Clinton, Connecticut under the name Manufacturing Solutions. His father was an engineer in the manufacturing field and also an entrepreneur. Mike Kane has been through it all. Machinist, CNC, engineer, R&D, all the way through to management and leadership at the VP level. So Brandon grew up learning a lot and being inspired by his dad. He went to a technical high school, and though he didn't even take a machining class, he started thinking about owning his own business during that time. He's making a name for himself, and as much as he's a role model for the new generation of metalworkers, he's also a humble person excited to learn from our community. Welcome, Brandon, back again.
2: Thank you, guys. And
1: Mike Kane, Mike, Mike's
0: dad is here in the studio with us. It's a pleasure to have you here and hear your story and really embellish on what Brandon told us before about manufacturing solutions and and where you're going to go. We were at lunch today with Brandon and Nick and I, and I said, you know, it really is a tight-knit community of people in manufacturing. And we all really, for the most part, we all want everyone else to be successful. And I want you to be as successful too. And I think it's all a p- the part of the giving back process because my family has been in it for, since 1978 too, and third generation is in the shop right now, and I wish you guys the best of success and luck along the way as well. So. When
1: you talk about manufacturing solutions, you know, the name of your business, and when we talk about the biggest problem in manufacturing, I spend a lot of my time on the road traveling, and every single place I go has the same problem. We can't get young kids passionate about this, Our, we're having a hard time filling the machines with talented workforce. And so, Brandon, you kind of represent the solution to that problem. I first found you on Instagram, I think, and I was like, man, this is what the industry needs. Everywhere I go, they'd love to have three, four, five Brandons. So anyway, let's let's dig in and, and talk a little bit about how your business came to be.
2: Yeah, well, thanks for that, Nick. Yeah, I mean, I, I grew up, I went to a, a technical high school, but ironically didn't take... A machining course there my dad was really
0: I'm gonna I'm a stop and remember, what is a technical high school what does that mean you know I went to a public high school that had a manufacturing shop what is it what was a technical high school
2: yeah so you're leaving there with a skill pretty much you're learning a trade whether it's carpentry machine tool electromechanical hVAC they have everything electrical like
1: so you didn't do you didn't do machining. What what did you do at the technical school?
2: I took electromechanical. So that was really like a well, I like still to say, very applicable to the industry. Yeah, absolutely. I like to say like a pre engineering background of everything from small like electronics to pneumatics and hydraulics. So learning a lot of stuff in that field. Yeah. So after
1: high school, at what point did you and your dad start kicking this idea around of hey, maybe we should do something together?
2: I think during high school, I always had like a thought that I knew I. I wasn't, not in a bad way, but just knew I wasn't or wanted to work for someone else my whole life and wanted something more to really like push for and something that was my own. And then after high school, I went to a community, I still go to community college, just picking away at classes from business and engineering, just really focusing on trying to figure out what I really wanted to do. I mean, growing up with my father, I always was hands-on and building things and fixing things and learning a lot of stuff. And I think That's really something that I was passionate about. And yeah, I mean, he really introduced me to the trade, and I fell in love with being able to design something on the computer and really go into the garage and make anything we really wanted to make, which is awesome. So.
1: So you talk about introducing your son to the trade. How did that start? When was that first moment where you were like, hey, Brandon should really maybe think about a career in this?
3: Yeah. Um, well, thank you for having me. First off, I didn't get a chance to yeah, jump sorry. in there. <laughs> yeah. But it really happened about two years ago. It well, it really wasn't that long. It was after he he got out of high school and and started to go to college. He took a few classes and started to recognize, hey, this is cool. You know, I was I was never the kind of dad that forced kids into whatever. I want them to be. I let them do whatever they wanted to do. And it was ironic, right? Because that's kind of my demeanor. Like, help your kids. You know this is a better choice for them. But I didn't. And then we joke about it now. You know, Five years later, eight years later, how long has it been? I'm like, you know what? I really should have told you to take machining after all. Look at where we'd be. We'd be so much farther along. Yeah, right. <laughs> and so it's kind of funny. It is funny. Yeah, that's that's kind of how it started. And it was really just in the garage. We, I had a, a manual milling machine and a lathe in the garage for 20 years, just like, Every machinist wants that, and he's got to have it, right? He's got to be able to make anything or fix anything. So I had that. And as I progressed through my career, I got involved more and more with the purchasing of products for companies, whether it was R&D-type products or whether it was full-blown production products. And because I have the background, I I know virtually how to make anything that I was buying. You know how to read a print. Yeah, I, I Yeah. I I could read a print. I can operate machines like in design. You know tolerances, you know alloy steels and yeah. Yeah. So it was, I was like, this is ridiculous that I'm paying this much for this. It shouldn't cost this much.
1: Because you know what goes into it.
3: Right. Exactly. I always felt that as management in these companies that I was working, we were always paying too much for things. I was always arguing with the whether it was the, the bigger companies that were building one or two prototypes for us, or when it was time to turn products in production. I'm like, this is just not right. I feel like the same guy when you're having your bathroom remodeled that you call up the plumber and he walks in he you say, oh, that's a nice house and a nice neighborhood and he says, oh, it's $20,000 remodel your bathroom and then you start asking questions like you're going to be here for a week and it's you know $3,000 worth of material. How does that turn into $20,000? And that was the feeling I had that people just weren't doing it right. Your time is worth X amount of money and your the material is the material cost and you're going to market up some and that should be the balance. That's how much things could cost and I felt People weren't doing that. So we basically started this really small in our garage. We, we thought that we would buy one machine and see how things were going and just deal with a little bit of prototyping. From you know, I have a lot of connections, and I put the word out, and we got a few jobs. And it just so happens we got really lucky. One of the companies that we, we built a lot of onesie-twosie prototypes for, their product launched. And they started to buy 10 at a time and then 15 at a time. And just yesterday we delivered a, a batch of parts for them that were for 40 sets of parts for the most part. And that's been going on for the last year or so. So we're, we're new into doing it ourselves. But I mean, that's kind of the story. That's, that's where we are today and how we got there. Quite honestly, it happened faster than we expected. We don't have everything in place we want to have in place but we kind of did what we had to do to satisfy this very good customer's needs. Yeah. So it sounds like you're definitely the visionary part.
0: They say all good businesses have a visionary and an integrator, somebody who has the big thought ideas, and then somebody that's actually going to execute the ideas. And making chips, Jason was always the visionary part, and I was always the integrator. Jason would always have all these great big ideas. Like,
1: hey, let's start a manufacturing podcast. Something like
0: that, and on and on and on and on and yeah. on. And I would have to filter those and, and kind of like really focus on the ones that I thought were would actually come to fruition. And then when Nick came on and the Making Chips marketing team came on, Nick more or less is the visionary on the marketing team, and Caleb is the integrator that works with Nick. So I think in all good, successful businesses, whether it's metalworking or restaurant businesses or or any other business, that there's always two people. One is a visionary, one is an integrator, and they can overlap a little bit. But it certainly sounds like, Mike, that you were the visionary. You were the impetus behind starting this business and really getting it kicked off. And then Brandon just came and said, yeah, you know, let's do it.
3: He was the executor. Yeah. Brandon certainly had to start somewhere. And to start somewhere, it's a lot easier to teach him machining and programming than it would be to teach him the business. You kind of got to learn the business as you do the business. 100% correct. It just makes more sense to start him there. And and as time goes on, he's going to do more and more of that until he's basically running the whole show by himself. You
0: bet. So Brandon, tell me about your CNC experience. So you, you left your technical high school. You did not have any CNC experience. Your dad, being the visionary, said, I think we should do this. I think there's something here. You're a hands-on guy. You get stuff done. You you think things through. You want to execute. So when did you start taking CNC classes? Tell us a little bit about that.
2: So um, it really started with the software before we even had a machine. So the CAD CAM software. I learned. I took a few classes in community college, a few CAD classes, so I had a little bit of a little bit of design experience and learned how to draw stuff. But it really started when we got the machine. And well, first we had the software. And
0: what kind of software were we using for CAD CAM or, or CAM? It's called BobCAD CAM. Yeah, I've heard about it. Absolutely.
2: Yeah. So I picked around on that for about a month till we got the machine, and slowly started to make a few things and prototypes around stuff I mainly started were they
0: real parts were they parts that you were selling or were they parts that your dad said hey here's a CAD model why don't you create a tool path let's grab some aluminum and start cutting there
2: it was really firearm stuff actually okay we we're kind of into just shooting recreationally sure and a little bit so absolutely oh,
1: so you were making your own stuff stuff that you wanted to use
2: yeah just playing around a little bit I mean I drew up a trigger and just tried machining it out of aluminum and some wood stuff, actually, and just small engraving stuff to get used to the tool pass and how it worked and things like that.
1: I think that's that's one of the biggest differences between how people used to learn and how people are learning now is a lot of times people are learning on the software now. They're starting with the software yeah. and then they're bringing it to the machine after that. Whereas we still do like the old school training at advanced where we, we start them on like the old manual mills. You and do? The, the, yeah. Really? And they go through like the old German apprenticeship program and you know, maybe the software comes later, but you see these guys like Titan Gilroy, who's, who are oh, all like, yeah, oh man, these kids that were in this digital age and they can pick it up and learn, learn it on the computer. And he's got kids in five axis already after three years, you know?
2: Yeah. Because of like this generation and how, I mean, I guess tech savvy we are. I picked up the software pretty quickly and was able to start So you parts. weren't
0: formally educated on the CAM software. You just kind of like were picking around at it and it seemed natural to you.
2: Correct. Yeah. So I didn't have any formal education in the software or manufacturing education as well. I learned it all
3: from my father and And father. the videos and stuff, right? We purchased the for the CAM system, we purchased the training set. They don't offer like a class you can go to like, right. realistically. Yeah, right. But we purchased a video series where you can watch the videos and they teach you different parts of that and all that kind of stuff. I want to comment on that, on what's different now than then and stuff. It's very interesting you do it like that, but really what's different is the industry. Brandon's made a quarter of a million dollars worth of parts this year, Wow! right? And really he's just learning how to cut metal. 20 years ago when I started, more than 20, 1980, right? 1984, I started in CNC. If you didn't know how to cut metal, the CNC equipment there was no chance of you being able to make a part. It was simply telling the machine to do what you would do by hand. Now with the, the advent of, of very good cam systems and tool libraries and standardized tooling and things like that, you could really take someone without a lot of metal cutting experience mm-hmm. and they could be reasonably successful in at least 3D, two and a half axis, CNC, making parts you know, on a CNC machine. And I think that's what's so much different. I started out with a teletype making punch tapes on my yeah. CNC <laughs> If you didn't NC. Cut metal, you couldn't see. Yeah, I, exactly. I hear all
1: the old guys talking about the yeah. punch tapes. Yeah.
3: And,
0: no, I never yeah. did that, but I learned doing g code programming yeah. at the Fidel Vertical Machining Center. So, I mean, I was pretty good, too. I could take a print, I could go to the machine, I could make my setup, and I could just hammer out just entering g code programs using cutter comp and touching my tools off and Ds and Hs and all and all those things. So it's interesting that it's kind of like reversed itself. So they're starting out with the, the CAD CAM technology as the benchmark and then they're integrating the cnc technology to that where before it was just the opposite we had to learn the fundamentals of machining right what it's like to actually crank through 300 series stainless steel or have a tap work harden in a piece of stainless steel and break the tap and no it's completely different nowadays
1: so i don't know is it better is it different is it worse
0: it's Uh, different i don't know i think it's different i think that's really good mark i think it's just different
1: Maybe there's more room for error. And I think you talk talking about startups. A lot of what you learn in a startup is you just learn through failure. You learn from making mistakes. You don't know what you don't know. And when you come across that problem, you're like, okay, now this is the first time. Next time will be better.
3: There's no question that to make a part now with a good cam system from a solid model and machine it on a CNC machine is far easier and less chance of screwing it up than cranking handles on a bridge board. Especially There's the fact, no you can way. simulate everything in the, machi- right. in the right. software. I mean, you no, can
0: see the tool path That's right. Yeah. Yeah. We
3: know the part's good. He knows the part's good before he go, even walks out to the machine. Right. The only time you're going
0: to have an error is if your clamp is in the way or you you pick it up incorrectly,
3: right? Yeah, yeah and then it's all just setup-wise. I mean, if you right. know, set the job up right, you're going to have issues. Exactly. Even to the, the point where, like right now, even when I was programming cncs myself we never had touch probes or anything like that everything was no touching off the tools put an edge finder in pick up your x and y zero now he's using a touch probe to do that so it's he doesn't even have to think about that. I mean, that's, that was usually one of the big things, right? You knew. Well, we to would have we be, would right? have like a one
0: thousand feeler gauge that
3: we would touch the tools off, right? Or and, a slip of
0: paper. <laughs> or a slip of paper, but the slip of paper was like a three, three thousandths, <laughs> exactly. And then, man, that one thousand shim stock would get you know. You'd come down on a little bit too far, and you'd be you'd be breaking it all off. Sometimes I'd have a piece that was was like half the size of my thumb, and it was all ripped apart because you touched off on it so many times. So, yeah, now that I'm sure you have the probing systems on the Haas. Yeah, that's yep. what we use all the time yep. as well. And it's great.
1: It's great. You can pick up a part in no time. It's just it's so
0: different. So
1: is the downside that maybe you you don't get as much of the fundamentals as you would if you went through the traditional maybe, training? Maybe, maybe.
3: Yeah, I, I think that's true. I mean, just based on the sheer number of parts, different parts he's made, if you had cranked handles and made at least one of those parts by hand, for every one, we made, I think the last order was like 33 different parts. If you had made 33 different parts by hand, you would learn a lot more than just writing the program in a CAM system and running it in a CNC. no question about that. Sure. So the learning curve is probably a lot longer for someone to to go from, hey, I'm just entering the, this industry to being an expert. I find it hard to believe you be, you really could become a metal-cutting expert if you just did CNC. Because you never really cut metal. You read in the book. You looked at a video. What speed and feed did you run? You took it off a chart. Like you said, you didn't crank the handles and feel what it's like. It was like, oh, my God, this feels terrible. And then climb mill some conventional mill. Or middle. here, yeah. and you're here. Yeah, you, you, on a bridge port. Right.
0: Yeah. I mean, I can I can sit in the office, and I, I can hear the machines running in the shop. And I'm like, oh, man, they're run, running way too slow. You know what I mean? Because I, I can hear that tool. Or the fixturing's not rigid enough. And at the end, like, you know what I mean? That's the fundamental knowledge of having those skill sets. You know, that's
1: something I hear everybody say is that hearing it, that hearing you know the sound lot. when it's a great cut. Yeah.
0: Well, it's just like when you golf, I'm not a huge golfer, but it's the same thing. When you hit that golf ball, man, and, right in the sweet and spot, it just pings, like, yeah. it, you know you hit it well.
1: So yeah, we, we talked a lot about, you know, the differences between how people would learn in the past, how people are learning now, and just how the industry's changed. But some things are constant. There's three functions to every business. Operations sales and marketing, and finance. So let's get into a little bit of the sales and marketing stuff. Right now, where is your work coming from, and and how are you getting that work?
3: Yeah, mainly it's word of mouth right now. No doubt, it's mostly connections that I've had. A little bit of work, we've done a little bit of stuff through what Brandon's been doing as far as Instagram. We've gotten a few jobs from there. But for the most part, we're again we're really early on and, and we probably grew faster than we wanted to. So we're being really careful about not that. I mean, our website's not even completely online yet. The last thing I want to do is disappoint a customer. So we're trying to walk before we run. And that's that's kind of the plan. I you mean, know, in the future, I know Brandon can talk a little bit more about the you know, the marketing side of it of how we wanna grow that you know, once we're ready.
1: Well, I think that's a great point because in the startup statistics article that we were talking about, one of the biggest reasons for failure isn't just not not being able to grow, it's growing too quickly and then not being able to satisfy your customers and failing for that reason, so... But let's get into some of this marketing stuff. That's how I found you.
2: Yeah, it's Uh, crazy.
1: We had Corey Kulpnick from Badass Machinist. I think he's got like 170,000 followers now. And Mm. and he's a fan and a friend of making chips. And, And we had him on the IMTS panel discussion when we were talking social media. And he had shared a story where he's like, hey, this kid... Reminds me of me when I was first getting started and it was your... Oh, was that that Brandon? Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. And so that's how we first found Brandon is through Corey being like, hey, this is a guy you know, kind of starting from, from where I started. So are you a man on a mission with the Instagram thing or do you just love social media? Or both?
2: I'd say I'm a man on a mission. I mean, I really, in this day and age, think that obviously that's where the attention is. And listening to a lot of people who are experts in that space and learning a lot, I've really just learn that that's, that's where you should be putting your stuff. And I mean, I'm not doing much from a marketing standpoint. I just, I saw the platform and the opportunity to document really what I'm doing day to day. I'm like, I'm, I'm here, I'm running parts all the time. Like I'm on this journey of starting this business and building it with my father and just want to like share the story. You know, I had no idea that you guys would stumble upon me and things of things of that nature, but Yeah, it's been awesome. So, I mean, and being able to connect with the community of machinists all around the world and inspire and help people in similar situations is really, really cool. Yeah, so
1: Corey found you, and then we found you through Corey. But when I talk to you, you've got all sorts of stories of people reaching out to you. And I I like what you said. It's just kind of documenting your your day-to-day life running a machine shop. So what are some of those, what's some of the feedback that you're getting? And what kind of questions are people asking you?
2: When Corey initially gave me some exposure in, on Instagram. I just got tons of DMs, just people inspired and asked me my story and how I get started and stuff like that. I'm just telling them like my journey and everything else, but also being able to connect with people in the manufacturing community, bouncing tips and ideas off each other and, hey, like, what what is your idea on how you would hold this part? And we're sending each other pictures back and forth and things like that. And then just eventually building connections with people where they're like, hey, we can't make this part right now. Can you just Check this out for me quick and like see if you can make this for us. And
0: cool. So you know what was really unique, Mike, when he said that? We never had that platform. Think about it. Brandon just said he's got a job, he doesn't know how to hold it, or he wants to amp up the efficiencies in his holdings. So he puts a picture out of what he's doing and he has this entire platform, community of resources that can instantly analyze that picture and in a matter of minutes get instant feedback for free about how you're going to able to hold it and machine it better it's crazy it is it's awesome
2: yeah
3: And he it, said free what, I mean, what is your budget? budget quite frankly you know what i mean yeah we'd have been going down to the photo mat and getting a photo printed out and sending <laughs> a, putting <laughs> it in an envelope <laughs> and sending it to somebody right? exactly how else would you have done it right
1: so do you guys have any sort of marketing budget or is it just all free social media stuff?
2: Yeah. I mean, it's word of mouth, like he said, and then just social media. I'm putting stuff out and people are, That's people awesome. are interested.
1: So what, what kind of
0: benchmarking or or ro- what we call rocks, which are quarterly goals that you want to hit, are you doing anything formally like that? And would you
3: like to share those with us? Yeah. Believe it or not, this sounds really funny from from a business guy, but my goal is not really a financial one right now with the business. Right, right, right. I, yeah. My goal for the end of this year is to, we want to have one full-time employee other than Brandon, someone who can truly keep the machines running. And we have two CNCs now. I have a third one coming in probably but then the next two three weeks, which will it's a different kind of CNC, so it'll open up a, another type of product line for us. We, you know, I didn't, I didn't tell you this yet, but we we kind of want to cater to prototyping things and making small production lots for people. I don't I don't think we're ever going to be. I don't think I ever really want to be competitive with when someone wants to make ten thousand of of a CNC machine part. I just don't think that's what I want to do. It's just not fun. I think there's a lot more competition in there. I think there over, is overall the business mm-hmm. prototypes. There's there's. Two or three companies in the U.S. right now that make probably 95% of the prototypes for everybody. And I think there's, a, there's a way in into that market. And then the short run production. I mean, how many times have I mean, you guys gotten someone call you up and want to make 12 of something when you're normally making a minimum of hundreds of something? If you choose to do it, it's 10, 12, 15 weeks out. And that doesn't work for me and in, in the other businesses that I run. I mean, I need parts, 12 parts in two weeks. I can't get that. So it seems like my experience in the industry. I see this big gap basically, and that's what we're trying to fill. So I'm not looking for a financial goal for this year is to be have another employee so we could keep our machines running. And then once we have that in place, fill out, there's a couple other machines that I think we'd want to have so we could be very well rounded. So if someone calls us up with a small sheet metal part or a lathe part, we can do that for them as well and turn it around in that same, you know, one to two day turnaround. That's what our goal is. Our goal isn't financial. I have a full time job. I'm supporting this right now. The business. Although it does make money, doesn't need to make money right now. We need to get it to the point where it's all set up and ready to run. Then we can start advertising it and get the website up and running. And then that stuff should take care of
1: itself. So your focus is getting your business into the position where you can position yourselves as this niche kind of prototype, small run shop. And that was one of my biggest questions. There's thousands of machine shops with a couple mills. How are you going to differentiate from all those? So it's interesting that you have an answer to that.
3: Yeah. Like I said, I I've quoted at least a thousand parts all over the country, relatively small, a quantity, small quantities, in the last 10 years. No one wants that work. I've brought all the work that that Brandon's doing right now, and this is about a third of it, to other shops to have quote. Some of them no have quoted me. People I've known for 20 years, they just never returned a quote. It's just insane. And those same people I hear complain about how there's there's no work and there's no business. You gotta do the work. You you gotta wanna do the work. And and I think a lot of people in these small shops are looking for the great job. I and mean, Brandon just noticed on this run, like, wow, it's really easy to make good money when you're making forty or something instead of one or something or two or something. Well, Most people I've run into go to the, go even farther than that. They want to set up and make a couple hundred or something. So they set the job up and it may run for a week or two weeks and they make 10 grand as opposed to, you know, setting up one or two jobs a day and making 500 bucks or a thousand bucks a job or 1500 bucks for the day. It just, I think it's a different mindset. And that's why I think things aren't really aligned with what people, what industry really needs.
0: So. You guys mentioned benchmarking and the vision is to hire a full-time employee. I don't know what the the skills gap is like here in Clinton, but I, I certainly know what it is like in the Chicago area. And it, it's probably the same, but there's just no young, skilled people that are entering the industry much like college graduates are entering in with marketing degrees or financial degrees. Do you see a skills gap in this industry? That's my first question.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. There's, there's no one. I mean, the funny story is a couple of years ago, I called up to trade school that I graduated from, which was happened to be the same trade school Brandon graduated from, and I wanted to hire a couple. Kids getting out of school who had a machining background. They spent four years to in trade school. They knew something about machining way more than someone who didn't. And it just so happens it was the last year that my actual instructor was going to be there. He was retiring, who I haven't really been in contact with. But he told me, Mike, he goes, Honestly, there's three people graduating this year, and I wouldn't recommend any of them to you. Really? In 1980, when I started, I had to take a test to get into the shop because Everyone wanted to be in machine tool and die. And if you didn't pass the test, that wasn't a shop that was open to you. And there was, I want to say, 35 of us in the shop that year. So it's it's unbelievable that there's no one getting into this industry. And, and honestly, I think that's what's going to turn things around. It's gonna. There's less and less people getting into it. There's less and less shops doing business. In, in our particular case, there's less and less shops doing the kind of work that I think we want to do, that I think is available out there. It just seems like the market's getting bigger and bigger for us when everyone else is saying it's getting smaller and smaller.
1: Mm. That's great. There's this huge problem that we talked about earlier in the industry, and we call it the skills gap, but shops like you see it as this huge opportunity to fill that problem Mm -hmm. and and to be the manufacturing solution.
3: Yeah, and we won't be looking for a 20-year machinist. That's not the guy I want. I mean, I don't want any jobs I got to run on a manual machine. So I'm looking for someone who's going to show up for work every day and really wants to learn. You yeah. know that's that's who we're looking for. I I don't really care if they're from a machine shop, but I mean, I'd love to get someone with a little skills and an apprentice would be awesome. But I wouldn't say it'd be a requirement by any means. I'm more interested in the person than skill set. We can teach people I agree. It's all about the culture.
0: If if they're aligned with your core values and the culture, your mindset, your business, you can always train them up, but they have to have the same fundamental core in their heart yep. about what Business is about what you believe your business is about, and make sure that they're aligned like that. And that's when you have the best bang for your buck. But where are you going to recruit these these young people from? Is there trade association? There's a obviously there's a technical school in the area. Where where would you go about finding them? Yeah,
3: I I would start there. Um, The state of Connecticut actually does a pretty good job trying to build up their manufacturing base, even though it's getting worse and worse every year. They are trying; they're putting money into it. You can call a state and get. You know, lists of names of places where there are students. And there is, I want to say there's like five or six trade schools in Connecticut, which is quite a few for a relatively small state like this. So I would start with that path the vocational trade schools.
1: One of the things we've done at Advanced is we have probably the largest apprenticeship program in the area. And man, I just, I go back, like if we didn't start that program 10 years ago, we would be in huge trouble. (laughs) So have you ever thought about that? Like after you've kind of evolved a little bit further and you've, you've got a couple guys in leadership and, and you might be able to start bringing in some of this young talent. Have you ever thought about like forming your own apprenticeship program here?
2: It'd be cool. Yeah. I mean, to, to really help the community and spread that knowledge of Manufacturing and where things come from. I think
3: there's some t- like tax incentives. I know there is for us. Yeah, yeah, there, there's definitely tax incentives for for that kind of thing. No question about it. I never really gave it thought at that level. I always thought about not necessarily bringing in people and helping them run my machines to make parts, to make me money, but kind of like one of the first first things I did in CNC. I did applications for a, a large manufacturer. We did a lot of training. I brought people in and actually trained them. So even if we didn't make parts for a living, it'd be kind of cool to have a machine or two set up where you you bring them in, you just teach CNC and teach metal cutting. Almost like a school atmosphere, but obviously a short, short stay type thing.
1: Yeah, it's almost like a little revenue stream for you. You offer the training, and then if you find a great star student, you can hire them. Great. So I,
0: I know we're getting about closing We're we're getting our, our time is just about up here, but I have a couple more questions that I think are really important to ask you. And I want to ask you both the same question. I'm going to start with Mike first. Where do you see manufacturing solutions a year from today? So
3: 4 twenty twenty. 2020 what, what does it look like? Brandon and one other full-time employee, fully functional CNC machining, lathes and mills, and a the ability to make reasonable prototypes in in sheet metal.
0: Oh, in sheet metal? Yeah. Okay, interesting. Great vision. Brandon, what do you think? What, what, what does it look like for 8-2020?
2: I mean, I like that idea. I also, I like the idea of becoming a bigger influence on social media. I want to be able to help people that way too. Whether it's, well, definitely help people in this field who have an itch to start their own thing and stuff like that. And really just coach them through that hopefully as well as build this business and
1: so when people are asking you for advice it's inspiring you to want to put more out there then
2: yeah absolutely i mean i I love helping people i want to help people and i think in turn will only help us as a business as manufacturing solutions and if we can be the place to have a very have a successful machine shop that does great work and prototype work as well as somewhere like you said that people can come to learn and Go online to learn from our content as well. I think that'd be pretty cool. Awesome.
0: Well, that's about it for this episode, this re record. I'm so glad we came out here today to meet Mike and get this highly functional episode up and on and, and to the airwaves. It's been an inspiration for me, and I really look forward to seeing where you guys are going to go a year from now. I wish you all the best of luck, and I, I really, you know, I want the best for you guys.
1: And keep posting that story, man. We'll be following.
0: Appreciate it, guys. Thank you.
1: Because you know why, Nick? You know what my dad always used to tell me? I think it's something like, you know, whether you're on the West Coast, the Midwest, or the East Coast, if you're not, you're not making, making
2: chips, chips. You're not making money. That's it, man. All right, bam.
3: As always, thank you for listening to the Making Chips podcast. You need to increase the speed and feet of your business. If you're not elevating your manufacturing leadership, you're going to get left behind. The Metalworking Nation is committed to a new way, to stay ahead of the competition. We have more content to help you make and elevate at makingchips.com. Gain access to exclusive content, as well as videos, blogs, show notes, and more resources designed to equip and inspire you. We'll see you next time.
0: But anyway, I got a three minute bio break. (laughs)
1: I'm never going to